You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, and thank you for joining the American Revolution. Today, episode 100, The Declaration of Independence. Over the last two weeks, I've discussed the vote for independence and the creation and distribution of the Declaration itself. This really is the key document of the American Revolution, and one that fundamentally changed the world. So I'm devoting this third week to this important topic. This week, I want to go through the Declaration line by line and explain the significance of each part. With that, let's begin. In Congress, July 4, 1776, the Unanimous Declaration of the Thirteen United States of America. The date of July 4th on the top of the document is the date Congress approved the final wording of the Declaration. Although Congress added the very next line calling it unanimous, a couple of weeks after that date, after the New York delegation changed its vote, reflecting the fact that all 13 colonies now supported the Declaration. When in the course of human events it becomes necessary for one people to dissolve the political bands which have connected them with another, and to assume among the powers of the earth the separate and equal station to which the laws of nature and of nature's God entitle them, a decent respect to the opinions of mankind requires that they should declare the causes which impel them to the separation. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their Creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these rights are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, that to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed, that whenever any form of government becomes destructive of these ends, it is the right of the people to alter or abolish it, and to institute new government, laying its foundation on such principles and organizing its powers in such form as to them shall seem most likely to affect their safety and happiness. Prudence, indeed, will dictate that governments long established should not be changed for light and transient causes. And accordingly, all experience has shown that mankind are more disposed to suffer while evils are sufferable than to right themselves by abolishing the forms to which they are accustomed. But when a long train of abuses and usurpations pursuing invariably the same object evinces a design to reduce them under absolute despotism, it is their right, it is their duty, to throw off such government and to provide new guards for their future security. Such has been the patient sufferance of these colonies, and such is now the necessity 
which constrains them to alter their former systems of government. The history of the present King of Great Britain is a history of repeated injuries and usurpations, all having in direct object the establishment of an absolute tyranny over these states. To prove this, let facts be submitted to a candid world. Okay, so this introduction summarizes quite well the idea of social contract theory. Radical ideas first espoused by people like Thomas Hobbes and later expanded by thinkers like John Locke and Jean-Jacques Rousseau. As the age of reason replaced medieval superstition, theorists could not simply rely on the idea that leaders were leaders because God ordained it, the so-called divine right of kings. Under this new social contract theory, governments came into being because people needed rules and enforcement of those rules to bring order to society. The people collectively gave this power to a government, but when government proved unwilling to serve the people in this goal, the people could dissolve it and create a new one. Locke listed fundamental rights which government should protect, life, liberty, and property. If government did not protect people's lives, let them live freely and protect their property, it was not doing its job and needed to be replaced. Jefferson famously replaced property with pursuit of happiness, a term Locke used elsewhere, as did other political philosophers. It is also a shortened version of what George Mason wrote in the Virginia Declaration of Rights, published a month earlier. Jefferson never directly explained this alteration. Some have theorized that he did not want property to be seen as a code word for protecting slavery. It could also simply be that Jefferson was thinking more about the right of taxation, which does take property and is acceptable if the people consent to it through their elected representatives. The phrase seemed to work. Jefferson then proceeds to explain that any government attempt to undermine these rights is justification for its replacement. The next section goes through the lists of reasons why the king has violated the social contract with the colonists. He has refused to assent to laws the most wholesome and necessary for the public good. He has forbidden his governors to pass laws of immediate and pressing importance unless suspended in their operation till his assent should be obtained, and when so suspended, he has utterly neglected to attend them. These are the general objections to restrictions colonial legislatures had to face more often in recent years as London attempted to rein in colonial legislatures. Although the King's Privy Council had never rejected a bill of Parliament since George I took power, George III's Council had rejected colonial legislation on several occasions. It also emphasizes the futility of attempting to govern from such a distance where it could take months for messages to pass back and forth across the ocean. He has refused to pass laws for the accommodation of large districts of people, unless those people would relinquish their right of representation in the legislature, a right inestimable to them and formidable to tyrants only. This seems to be a dig at attempts to suspend colonial lawmaking authority in colonies that objected to parliamentary laws. The colonies had no representation in Parliament and could not relinquish legislative authority to that body, 
Some have also said it is a criticism of the royal government's failure to redistrict legislatures as populations moved into western lands without representation in the colonial legislatures. He has called together legislative bodies at places unusual, uncomfortable, and distant from the depository of their public records for the sole purpose of fatiguing them into compliance with his measures. This appears to be a direct attack at royal directives that forced the Massachusetts legislature to meet in locations other than Boston. Virginia and South Carolina also had to meet in other locations as well. He has dissolved representative houses repeatedly for opposing with manly firmness his invasions on the rights of the people. He has refused for a long time, after such dissolutions, to cause others to be elected, whereby the legislative powers, incapable of annihilation, have returned to the people at large for their exercise, the state remaining in the meantime exposed to all the dangers of invasion from without and convulsions within. In the years leading up to war, rural governors repeatedly suspended legislative sessions and elections when it was clear that those legislatures would vote on things with which the leadership in London disagreed. This effectively left some colonies without representative government, sometimes for years. He has endeavored to prevent the population of these states for that purpose obstructing the laws for naturalization of foreigners, refusing to pass others to encourage for their migrations hither, and raising the conditions of new appropriations of land. This criticized attempts by the Crown to limit immigrants from outside of the British Empire from settling in the colonies, and also attempts to restrict settlements in western lands. Colonists wanted to settle more lands and expand westward. London did not want large numbers of people with traditional allegiances to other European powers settling in large numbers. It also did not want western expansion to provoke another war with the Indian tribes. He has obstructed the administration of justice by refusing to assent to laws for establishing judiciary powers. He has made judges dependent on his will alone for the tenure of their offices and the amount and payment of their salaries. For nearly a decade, London had attempted to have judges appointed by royal governors and to have London pay their salaries. Colonists saw this as an attempt to bias judges in favor of London. This was one reason Massachusetts began the Committees of Correspondence, to see if London was undermining judicial control in other colonies as well. It was also one of those sneaky behind-the-scenes power grabs that put the Patriots on high alert. He has erected a multitude of new offices, and sent hither swarms of officers to harass our people and eat out their substance. This was most likely a reference to the many tax collectors, customs officials, and other trade regulators that often cost more taxes than they created. Colonists also saw how British officeholders often sucked up wealth in other colonies around the world. This included bishops for the Anglican Church. These jobs created comfortable lives for well-connected members of the British establishment at the expense of the colonists. He has kept among us, in times of peace, standing armies without the consent of our legislatures. The most notable of these incidents was the British occupation of Boston beginning in 1768. 
New York also had a fight over having to pay soldiers they did not want. Armies were necessary when there was an external threat. Using them as law enforcement against the people was an act of tyranny. He has affected to render the military independent of and superior to the civil power. This fight went back at least as far as the French and Indian War, when British commanders simply did whatever they wanted, without feeling constrained to explain themselves to colonial legislatures or even royal governors. Civilian control, meaning local control of soldiers in their midst, was considered an absolute necessity. He has combined with others to subject us to a jurisdiction foreign to our Constitution and unacknowledged by our laws, giving his assent to their acts of pretended legislation. This seems to be a dig at the King for supporting the authority of Parliament in London to legislate on behalf of the colonies. For quartering large bodies of armed troops among us. Again, this is a reference to putting regulars in colonies that did not want them and which the colonists had to support financially. This was not an issue just of putting soldiers in individual homes. Colonists did not want to support regular soldiers inside their colonies wherever the soldiers slept. For protecting them by a mock trial from punishment for any murders which they should commit on the inhabitants of these states. This is a jab at one of the coercive acts which the colonists dubbed the Murder Act. It ordered that colonial courts could not try regular soldiers for murder. Such trials had to be held in military courts back in London. For cutting off our trade with all parts of the world. Britain had always barred direct trade between colonies and other countries outside the empire, but with the outbreak of war, it had banned all colonial trade anywhere. Such a blockade is generally considered an act of war for imposing taxes on us without our consent. This, of course, had been the rallying cry of protest since the Stamp Act of 1765, for depriving us, in many cases, of the benefit of trial by jury. Britain, of course, had moved many hearings to admiralty courts which did not have juries. For transporting us beyond the seas to be tried for pretended offenses. Britain had threatened for years to send colonists to London for trial for certain crimes, though I'm not sure they actually did this until after the war began. For abolishing the free system of English laws in a neighboring province, establishing therein an arbitrary government and enlarging its boundaries so as to render it at once an example and fit instrument for introducing the same absolute rule into these colonies. This is a reference to the Quebec Act. Britain had maintained many French laws and refused to introduce basic English principles of government, like juries and elected legislatures. It then gave Quebec control over all Western lands. This expanded the size of a colony that had no basic liberties, thus preventing other colonies from settling those lands without giving up their rights as Englishmen. For taking away our charters, abolishing our most valuable laws, and altering fundamentally the forms of our government. This is a pretty direct reference to the Massachusetts Government Act, the 1774 Coercive Act, which revoked the colonial charter and took away most power of self-government. For suspending our own legislatures and declaring themselves invested with power to legislate for us 
in all cases whatsoever. Again, this is referencing the suspension of colonial legislatures when the governor didn't like what they were doing, and also seems to be a pretty direct reference to the Declaratory Act, which held that Parliament had the right to legislate for the colonies in all cases whatsoever. Also, of course, London seemed to bypass colonial legislatures and impose its own rules on colonists on an ever-expanding range of issues. He has abdicated government here by declaring us out of his protection and waging war against us. In late 1775, following the news of Lexington and Concord, the king declared the colonies in rebellion and outside his protection. This effectively called on Parliament to go to war with the colonies. The king's decision to take Parliament's side rather than broker a compromise was what led many moderates in the colonies to join the move for independence. He has plundered our seas, ravaged our coasts, burnt our towns, and destroyed the lives of our people. Since the war began, the army and navy had of course engaged in open warfare, burning towns like Falmouth, Charleston, and Norfolk. He is, at this time, transporting large armies of foreign mercenaries to complete the works of death, desolation, and tyranny already begun with circumstances of cruelty and perfidy scarcely paralleled in the most barbarous ages and totally unworthy the head of a civilized nation. Although they had not been in battle yet, the delegates were well aware that the king had paid German mercenaries to supplement the army that Britain was sending to America. The idea that a leader would hire foreigners to kill his own people was seen as an act of tyranny. He has constrained our fellow citizens taken captive on the high seas to bear arms against their country, to become the executioners of their friends and brethren, or to fall themselves by their hands. Britain had regularly captured merchant vessels and forced colonist sailors either to join the British Navy or be killed. He has excited domestic insurrections amongst us and endeavored to bring on the inhabitants of our frontiers, the merciless Indian savages whose known rule of warfare is an undistinguished destruction of all ages, sexes, and conditions. The term domestic insurrections is generally considered to be a reference to Virginia Governor Dunmore's attempts to get slaves to oppose the rebellion in defense of the crown. This also references attempts by British Indian agents to get various tribes to support British efforts in the war. The phrase merciless Indian savages has been tagged as racist in recent years. However, it does reflect the fear that, at the time, native tribes engaged in warfare that tended to commit horrific acts against civilians and prisoners. Yes, colonists often visited the same level of cruelty against natives, but for the colonists at this time, this was a particularly scary element of warfare that they wished to avoid. In every stage of these oppressions, we have petitioned for redress in the most humble terms. Our repeated petitions have been answered only by repeated injury. A prince, whose character is thus marked by every act which may define a tyrant, is unfit to be the ruler of a free people. Colonists had been sending petitions for many years, but of course made no progress with these. This was Congress's way of saying, we tried to settle this by appealing to the government, but got nowhere. The refusal of leaders even to consider petitions and debate the problems 
was a sign that the government was not interested in the support of the people, but rather relied on the tyrannical use of force to control them. Nor have we been wanting in attentions to our British brethren. We have warned them from time to time of attempts by their legislature to extend an unwarrantable jurisdiction over us. We have reminded them of the circumstances of our emigration and settlement here. We have appealed to their native justice and magnanimity, and we have conjured them by the ties of our common kindred to disavow these usurpations, which would inevitably interrupt our connections and correspondence. They too have been deaf to the voice of justice and of consanguinity. We must therefore acquiesce in the necessity which denounces our separation, and hold them, as we hold the rest of mankind, enemies in war, in peace friends. The colonies had also made direct appeals to the English people. Sometimes they got results when the English, concerned about trade boycotts, encouraged their parliament to back down. But in recent years, the British public did not seem terribly sympathetic. As a result, they seemed to hold different interests and could not remain a single people anymore. Someday they might be allies again, but never again one people. We, therefore, the representatives of the United States of America, in General Congress assembled, appealing to the Supreme Judge of the World for the rectitude of our intentions, do in the name and by the authority of the good people of these colonies, solemnly publish and declare that these united colonies are and of right ought to be free and independent states, that they are absolved from all allegiance to the British crown, and that all political connection between them and the state of Great Britain is and ought to be totally dissolved, and that as free and independent states they have full power to levy war, conclude peace, contract alliances, establish commerce, and to do all the other acts and things which independent states may of right do. And for the support of this declaration, with a firm reliance on the protection of divine providence, we mutually pledge to each other our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor. This final paragraph very directly states that for the above reasons, the colonies are now sovereign states with no political ties to Britain they would continue a war against what they now regarded as a foreign nation of Great Britain. They would seek the assistance of other countries to win that war. In pledging their lives, fortunes, and sacred honor, the delegates recognized they were putting everything on the line. After this open challenge to who would be the sovereign of North American settlements, there was no turning back. With that, the Continental Congress and America awaited Britain's response. Next week, the British begin landing the largest military force ever seen in America at Staten Island, New York. This episode is supported by the food delivery service, Factor. It's spring now, and we all want to spend more time outdoors, enjoying life, not the kitchen. Factor ensures you have fresh, never-frozen, chef-crafted, dietitian approved meals that you can prepare in just two minutes. Each week you get a menu of 35 meal options, as well as 60 add-ons, including breakfasts, on-the-go lunches, snacks, and beverages. 
You can customize your orders to get as much or as little as you want each week and can pause or make changes to your orders at any time. Factor is less expensive than takeout and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. It's the perfect solution if you're looking for fast, upscale options done easily. Now, they even have a special deal for fans of the American Revolution podcast. Head to factormeals.com slash ARP50 and use that code ARP50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box. That's code ARP50 at factormeals.com slash ARP50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. Hi, thanks for joining this American Revolution podcast book recommendation. Before I get to this week's book, I want to celebrate the milestone of reaching 100 episodes. I've been at this now for nearly two years, and the podcast has grown in ways that I did not dream of when I started. The podcast has well over 300,000 downloads overall, and gets over 40,000 new downloads each month. It has listeners in all 50 states, all Canadian provinces, and more than 100 countries around the world. A few fun facts, the podcast is most popular per capita in South Dakota and least popular in Hawaii. The most popular country where English is not the first language is Norway, which is fifth best overall. But I really want to thank everyone who has taken the time to listen. And a special thanks to everyone who has taken the time to give me a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts or who's made a financial contribution via PayPal or Patreon to support the show. And these, of course, include our Robert Morris Circle supporters on Patreon, Mark Vandenberg of Colonial Radio on the Air, and Dave Salvatore of American Revolution Today. I've been able to keep everything on this show available for free so far, both podcasts and the blog, which is essentially a transcript of each podcast episode, but it also, of course, includes pictures, maps, and links to other sources. I've been experimenting with advertising. At present, though, the show is ad-free, and I prefer to keep it that way if possible. If you appreciate the show and are in a position to support it, I'm really grateful for the financial assistance. If you join as a Patreon member, you can get special advance access to future episodes and some other benefits as well. Go to patreon.com and search for American Revolution Podcast if you want more details. Also, so far, I've been able to publish every single week without fail for two years. I hope to keep up with that pace, but it is pretty relentless sometimes. All of your support and enthusiasm for the show really keeps me going. All of that is looking backward, though. With 100 episodes under my belt, I don't think I'm even close to halfway done. I've still got to get through six more years of war. Assuming you aren't tired of me by then, and I'm not too tired of doing this, I may keep going through at least the adoption of the U.S. Constitution. That means many more years and hundreds of more episodes. Okay, so this week we finished up with independence and are ready to move on to the next phase of the war beginning with the invasion of New York. This week's book recommendation is American Scripture, The Making of the Declaration of Independence by Pauline Mayer. This book covers the build-up to independence, the drafting of the Constitution, and how it affected the war and the future of America. 
Dr. Mayer was a university professor and served in numerous leadership roles related to historical organizations. She's written several other good books on issues related to the revolution, some of which may be future recommendations. Unfortunately, Dr. Mayer passed away a few years ago, but she leaves behind a wonderful legacy of work. In her book, American Scripture, Mayer gives a really good analysis of the development of the Declaration and the people and events that provided the basis for the document. The book was first published in 1997. It's just over 200 pages, not counting the appendix and index. But the appendices are probably worth buying the book by themselves. They include several state, local declarations and resolutions on independence, as well as Jefferson's draft copy and the changes that other members made to the document along the way. It's an excellent analysis of the process that led to independence. For my online recommendation this week, I'm going to recommend the Revolutions podcast by Mike Duncan. Mike's podcasts were the first ones I ever heard, and I was hooked immediately. I loved his coverage of various historical periods and his easy and humorous style. Although he does not know me, his work has been an inspiration to me. The podcast, Revolutions, covers a wide variety of different revolutions around the world, starting with the English Civil War and finishing up soon with the Russian Revolution. His coverage of the American Revolution was enjoyable, but in just 15 episodes, it didn't give the detail that I craved, hence my own project that focused on that one revolution. Duncan gives much more coverage to the French Revolution and several in Latin America, which I found very informative and enjoyable. If you haven't listened to his work, you probably should. You can find him on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcast. He also has a website at revolutionspodcast.com. Well, that's all for this week. I hope you will join me again next week for another American Revolution podcast. The French Revolution set Europe ablaze. It was an age of enlightenment and progress, but also of tyranny and oppression. It was an age of glory and an age of tragedy. One man stood above it all. This was the Age of Napoleon. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast. Join me as I examine the life and times of one of the most fascinating and enigmatic characters in modern history. Look for the Age of Napoleon wherever you find your podcasts.